0: The best thing you can teach a young athlete to do is the word no. No. And I tell them all the time, you have the power. Just say no.
1: What's up, tribe? Welcome back to the podcast that brings you closer to the world's biggest risk takers and enemies of the status quo. This podcast is for people who want to take the plunge in life but need a little nudge. I'm your host, Coach Darren K. Roberts and I went from Harvard Law to the NFL by the grace of God and good old fashioned grit. Now, hey, listen, if I asked you who is the most important person in college football, you'd probably say Nick Saban. But let's take a step back and look at the man who represents 11. That's right. 11 of the 14 head coaches in the SEC, including Mr. Nick Saban. His name Jimmy Sexton, is this guy just lucky? Well, we brought Jimmy to campus for a one-on-one conversation in front of a packed crowd. And this is the audio from that convo. Are you wondering how a man like Jimmy Sexton gets to the top of the sports food chain? His story will dispel the myth that it was merely luck. Jimmy capitalized on a very key opportunity while he was still in college. When a guy named Reggie White asked him to help him with a contract. Hey tribe, this is a story about taking the leap before looking over the edge. Now let's listen to Jimmy Sexton. So if I were to pull you out of your 11th grade English class and ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would the answer have been?
0: In 11th grade, I probably wanted to be a coach. Uh, that's what I thought I wanted to do until I got to college. And at the time, this is the 1980s, I saw how hard they worked. And that's before the advent of how college football exploded. And I thought, wow, this is crazy how how the recruiting, the schedule, everything else. And so um, I would say 11th grade, I probably wanted to go into
1: coaching. Why the University of Texas? Or the University of Tennessee? I'm sorry, I'm uh, so... He went to the other UT, and I'm so programmed to, to go with the burnt oil, and um, so why with the other show go? I grew up in
0: Tennessee. My father's whole side of the family went there. It was sort of an unspoken rule that we were going there. My brothers went there, so it was I didn't have much of a choice at that time.
1: So Reggie White had a large part, and it was kind of one of the main drivers in getting you into the business. Talk about the story that kind of led you into this profession.
0: Well, nowadays, whenever I speak to a group like this, I always am curious to the group that knows who Reggie White really is, because... On the player side of our business, over the years, we would go and and talk to players, and you know, in the '90s, early 2000s, everybody knew but As as they've gotten older, you know, people identify with a JJ Watt or somebody else. But Reggie White was in the '80s and '90s what JJ Watt is today is, better, is the best way to say it. And so, um, when I went to, when I went to college my freshman year, I went on campus, didn't know anybody. Um, I was a average to below average high school athlete. Love sports, wanted to stay involved, worked in the, with the football team at Tennessee as an assistant. And um, back then we had athletic dorms. And when I checked into my athletic dorm, my sweet mate, my two sweet mates were a guy named Reggie White and Willie Galt. Uh, Willie Galt was an Olympic sprinter, won the gold medal, a great wide receiver, played for the Bears, 85 um, Super Bowl team. And Reggie was a great defensive lineman. So I met two guys that were couple years ahead of me in school, but we're going to go through this process of professional sports. Um, and so he was my first client through a long, convoluted story about how he, how he became a client. But you know, I'll say this to everybody in this room today. I mean, back in that era, there wasn't a lot of talk about what athletes made in pro sports. I mean, Joe Namath had gotten a really big deal in the AFL back then, or, or you know, 10, 50 years before that. But it was nothing like it is today. We're literally, you know, there are websites you can go to to track everything every athlete makes. I mean, it's it's there's much more information out there today than there was back then.
1: So that, that first um, experience, and you had a couple of men approach you. and
0: Yeah, and, we were in 1983. We were playing in the Citrus Bowl. We were playing Maryland and what we call a Friday walkthrough. I don't think it was a Friday because during the bowl season, the games aren't always played on Saturday. But the day before the game walkthrough, Uh, We walked through and there was sort of a a rain mist in Orlando. And this is where the Citrus Bowl was played before January 1st. And um, two men walked up to me. I was 19 years old at the time. I just turned 20. And um, I was a sophomore in college. They walked up to me and they said, You're Jimmy Sexton. I said, Yes. And they said, "Um, Well, we know you and Reggie White are really close friends. Do you know how much money? I didn't know who these guys were at all. They had trench coats on. It was like a scene out of a movie. And I said, I don't know anything about that. And they said, well, Lawrence Taylor is the highest paid player in the NFL on defense, and he makes $400,000 a year. I said, okay. And they said, we have an envelope here with a contract for Reggie to play for the United States Football League. It was a competing, those of you all that watched the 30 for 30 specials lately on the USFL, they were a competing league. So we've got a contract here for him to make $1.5 a year. Would have made him far and away the highest paid football player, offense or defense at the time. And I didn't know. I didn't know enough about the business, but I did know that 1.5 million was a lot more than 400,000. <laughs> and so um, I ran the locker room and I said, "Big dogs." So we called him. I said, "Man, you're getting ready to get paid as soon as this game's over with tomorrow night." But look, in today's world, that could never have happened. What those guys did, And while, while I would tell you, I don't what they necessarily broke a rule. I don't think what they did was really, you know, it was something that you would it would never happen today. And so smartly enough i didn't take the envelope i just told them what they had told me and i thought those guys would disappear you know out into the night now this is before cell phones okay it's 1983. so we get back to the hotel and we're getting ready to have bed check and my phone rings in my room and they see these guys again and they say hey we'll see you after the game tomorrow we want to give you that envelope and so after the game was over somebody came to the locker room and got me and they said hey you need to come out here and talk to these guys they they want to talk to you again. So I went outside and met them. They said, "Listen," and I, I said, "We want to we want to sign Reggie right now." We're like, hold on, guys, we don't know what we're doing. You got to wait. He's got the NFL draft coming in April. They said, "No, no, we want to sign him right now before he goes to the NFL draft." So, I'll make a long story short, through that process, nothing happened that night. They they literally whined and died and recruited him. They brought him to Memphis to the it was for the Memphis Showboats, the USFL. They brought him to Memphis for the Liberty Bowl. They hooked him up on a. They they put him on a blind date with Miss America, who was Vanessa Williams at the time. I mean, they were doing everything they could to try to get this guy to sign in the USFL. And he ended up signing in the USFL a month or two later. Um, But that's how I got in the business. So, whenever I speak, I spoke earlier today to a class on campus about it. And I have students come up to me and say, Hey, tell me your career path. How did you, what did you study? What law school did you go to? And I just look at them and say, you know, one of my close friends happened to be probably the best defensive lineman that ever played. That's how I got the business. So
1: now you talk about risk taking. I mean, what made you, though, say yes, when you had no experience in the in the business? I mean, a lot of people would have said, look, I can't do this. Talk to someone else. But what gave you the confidence to take that on?
0: I probably didn't know any better, to be honest with you. I mean, I, and I, I'd like to say, hey, I was confident. I didn't really know what I was even doing. Um, and I think that you know, my first two players in each sport, I Reggie White in football and Scotty Pippen in basketball. So I was able to break through with two Hall of Fame, you know, generational type players. And in some ways, it's, it's hard. You can mess that up, but it may be easier to mess up a fifth round pick than it is that. And so I think I was able to learn on the go, and I, I was always eager to learn. I was always eager to jump, jump, you know, feet first in to try it. And so I didn't, I don't know that that could happen in today's environment because there's so many um agents out there. Now, the one thing to note is back in the eighties, the the there were there were very few schools, if any, that had sports management degrees or even sports law programs at the time. I mean the money that was around sports back then was nothing like it is now. It was and so we're talking, you know, thirty some odd years ago. So it's it's different now and it would be harder to break in that way, but I was fortunate to have the relationships there to, to do that.
1: One of the things throughout your story is that you follow up on information and, and talk about with Scottie Pippen how you found your way to this player who would land the, in the Hall of
0: Fame. I've been an agent for about a year or so, I guess, year and a half, and um, I got a literally a, a thing in the mail from a friend of mine in Arkansas, and it was a Arkansas Democrat Gazette newspaper. And, again, this is back pre-internet. This is back when newspapers were really things that everybody went to the other driveway every morning, picked up and read – didn't pull their cell phone out and and click and read. And this guy sent this newspaper to me. On the back of the newspaper, I'll never forget it, he had a sticky note. And it said, Jimmy, you should check this guy out. No, you don't do basketball players yet, but I think this guy has a good chance to be a seventh or eighth round pick. And I still have the the, the newspaper. And so I called the coach over there and I said, I don't have any NBA players. Never done NBA, but I'd like to come see your player. He said, "Yeah, come on." At that time, nobody was over there. This player obviously exploded and became the, you know, the fifth pick in the lottery, and so that was my first NBA player. So that that's how that's how I found out about Scottie Pippen.
1: Between basketball and football, just those two. Talk about the differences in representing players of, of each sport.
0: Well, the, the football, of course. Baseball, I baseball, baseball players have the longest road to get most of the time where they want to get to. So there's not a lot of resentment in the locker room in baseball as far as what a guy makes because sometimes that guy that makes that kind of money spent, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, those years of his life on a bus until he was 25. So he may literally have been traveling single-A ball, double-A ball, whatever. And so he's kind of worked his way up. Um, football is probably the ultimate team game. I mean, I go back to when the Broncos had John Elway and he played for 12 years, never won a Super Bowl until he got Terrell Davis and other players. And so basketball is the game that I think is the most difficult to manage the player for one reason. A great basketball player knows when he steps on the floor and, and that team goes to a, from a plus 20, plus 25 win from one season to the other, he knows he's the reason. And so it gives him a lot of leverage and a lot of ego in the team improving. And sometimes if the player's not wired the right way, it can be hard for the rest of the team to handle that. And so I would say that they all have different dynamics to them. Uh, baseball and basketball, for the most part, have guaranteed contracts. Football does not. And it's really and, and what a lot of people don't realize is a lot of people think that there's things in the collective bargaining agreement that say, well, a baseball contract should be guaranteed a basketball contract has to be guaranteed. That's not true. It's just those players have done a better job over the last 30 years in collective bargaining and in in their own negotiations to get those contracts guaranteed.
1: Are the players that you've seen do well and transition well after their, their playing days are over, are there any characteristics that you think are sort of mainstays for those athletes who are able to move to that next step?
0: I think the ones that do the best are the ones that take very seriously what they're doing, okay? And I mean... It's hard. I you just get a lot of people that come up to me over the years of my career and they would make fun of players that you represent that blow a lot of money or spend a lot of money or waste a lot of money. And I you know, I tell everybody this, I said, Listen, you know, I think I came from a average middle middle class household in America, it was educa- had a good education, but if you'd handed me twenty million dollars when I was twenty years old, all bets are off. I have no idea what I've done with it. I mean, really. I mean, I, and, and so I think it's unfair sometimes. You know, I think we talked earlier today about this. Most of us in this room are, are graduated from college, are going to graduate from college and get our first job and then build on that year to year. And, you know, 30, 40 years down the road, if you look at our earning cycle, it's going to be like this. It's going to start low and do this way. A professional athlete does more like this. Okay, and so if they make mistakes in their 20s, those are usually seven-figure type mistakes. Those aren't, you know, the mistake I made when I was 25 cost me $5,000. Well, I can recover from that. But that that player may have made a $5 million mistake or a $15 million mistake. It's hard for him to recover from that. So we we say this all the time at our company, and we don't, we don't manage a player's money. Other people do that. But we look at the characteristics of the guys that played 10, 15, 16 years, and it's hard to, to tell a guy on the front, you, if you – If you see a guy early on that can't save and can't manage, what I always tell players is, listen, it doesn't matter how much you make. It's how much you keep. I mean, if you can make it every year, if you spend it every year, guess what? When it runs out, it's over. You're not going to be able to do it. And the worst guys I see psychologically are the ones that have made tens of millions of dollars and gotten used to that lifestyle, not planned, not saved, and then by the time they're 35 years old, they're broke and then psychologically they're wrecked because they knew what it was like for 10 years to live that way, and now they don't have it, and they don't have the earning power to recreate that. And guess what? They're sitting at 35 years old with probably more of their life left to live, you know, after that for a life expectancy, knowing, wow, I really blew my shot, you know, from that
1: standpoint. You have to wear a lot of different hats. I mean, at one point you're a negotiator, you're a psychiatrist. I mean, how do you navigate when you're giving a player advice – uh, or a coach advice for
0: that? Yeah, the the biggest fallacy that people think about our business is they watch Jerry Maguire, they watch Ballers, or Entourage, or whatever type do they watch, and they think, okay, an agent spends all day, every day negotiating deals. He's deal making all the time, twenty four seven, and that is an extremely small part of what we're doing. I mean, it's it's very small, maybe fifteen to twenty percent of what we do. The other 70 to 80% of what we do is literally career advice, mentoring. I don't mean mentoring like I know everything, you don't know anything, listen to me. I mean just a sounding board. And what I find in most of the cases, especially the players are this way, but really the coaches, the coaches feel like they don't really have anybody they can talk to. They, they feel like they're out of school and – Uh, whether it's Texas or Tennessee or Alabama or Florida or USC, wherever, they're all the same in in this regard, that everybody at that school has conditional love for them, meaning that, hey, as long as you win, we're good, but don't lose. And don't lose two years in a row or three years in a row because you're gone. And so they feel like they need somebody they can talk to all the time about their program, what they're going through, things like that. And so and that, that's really what we spend most of our time doing. And also, from a player standpoint, is mentoring those guys through their career to make the right decisions about whether to take a contract extension, whether to go to free agency, you know, things like that.
1: Talk about coaches. So you have 11 of the 14 SEC head football coaches. Um, one in particular just signed a pretty big contract um, at a school that we won't mention around here, and you were part of that guaranteed deal. What is the difference Is, is you're working with, clients who are, who are coaches, what is their cycle and what are their concerns um, throughout the year?
0: Well, I think that they're, they're concerned about perception a lot of times. They're concerned about how they're perceived at their school. They're also concerned now with the information that's out there all the time. And, and a lot of them are concerned about not making a misstep or a mistake that sort of costs them their career. Um, because once a coach gets a deal that's a, whatever it is, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, seventy million dollar guaranteed deal. The only way they can mess that up from a financial standpoint is to do something they're not supposed to do and be fired for calls. And so they spend a lot of time being concerned about making sure they're 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 following the procedures, follow the rules. And a lot of that is our job to help them with, but it's also the school's job. I mean, all the schools have massive compliance departments that are most of them are very good at helping the coaches with that. And so I think from the from the standpoint they're it's a very high pressure, and I think I've never, at, and I'll be honest with you, when I first got into the coaching business, um, I at times would feel like, wow, this is a lot of money for a coach, you know. And But once I saw how quickly they get terminated if things go wrong, I thought, you know what, their earning curve may look large right now, but if you just go back and look, and, and we did a study last year of the Power 5, the last, I think it was the last three years or four years, of the Power 5 coaches that got fired, only two of them got jobs within the next two years as head coaches. And one of them was a coach here, went to South Florida, but that's not another Power 5 job, that's a group of five job. And the other one was Will Muschamp, who got fired at Florida, went to a year at Auburn, and then got the South Carolina job. And so when you really look at it that way, if a coach ever really gets fired for poor, poor performance or poor record, it's extremely hard for that coach to catch back on as a head coach in the near future. So, you know, his contract's got to be handled properly to make sure he has some security in that.
1: You know, a lot of public universities, there's a lot of scrutiny surrounding coaches' compensation. Do you th- expect those numbers to continue to rise the next decade?
0: I think they will. I don't know. Like, we had a crazy year last year in the Southeastern Conference especially. and I, I think it would be this way in any conference, the Big 12, the pac 12, Big Ten, Um, if you have a large percentage of your football coach or basketball coach-based turnover in the same year, you're going to have chaos in that conference. And so, for instance, in the SEC, I think six or seven changes happened in the same literally three-week period. And so you had a lot of the athletic directors and presidents competing for the same group of coaches, and it drove the price really high. So I don't know if we're going to see as much of an increase as we did last year, it really can't keep up. That that was really sort of a, a you know abnormal. Um, but you know, as long as there's the demand out there, as long as the people are paying the rights fees, ticket sales, we'll see. But I mean, it's, it's you know, I've always said this: the schools, and for the most of them, they're not going to pay more than they can afford. At some, it'll, it'll always like anything in the free enterprise system; it'll work itself out.
1: And we've talked about the fact that attendance is going down. I mean, even in the SEC, you'll have games that are night games between. Two big-time opponents, and you know half of the student section is empty, and that's because they can watch a great game on TV and they can toggle between stations. Uh, do you expect, from a fan engagement standpoint, is there a way to get more people to the stadiums, or do you think? Well,
0: that's at, no. Almost every athletic director that I deal with the last twenty-four months, one of the things that's been on the tip of their tongue has been the fan experience at their games. And not I'm not just talking about buying a ticket, walking to Section 302, watching the game, getting a popcorn and a Coke, and then going home. I'm talking about the whole experience surrounding the game, the whole day at the campus, everything. And And where that comes from a lot is that while rights fees have skyrocketed in the different networks and conferences and things like that, The fan, if you look at certain games, like you'll go to certain games and if you're at the game, you'll look up and think, wow, there's some empty seats up there. You never saw this years ago. And so I think that there's a concern that is the television experience so good that some fans are staying home to watch that. But also there's a lot of athletic directors that are looking hard at, you know, what is the fan experience for our fans at the games and how can those be made better to keep the fans coming to the games? Because even though a majority of the money is made off television rights fees, you don't you can't end up 10 years from now having blocks of empty seats. It's not going to be good for anybody. And, and people are still watching and interested, but you still need the fan experience to be good for the game.
1: Talk to people. So we've got a lot of students here who want to get into athletics, um, want to become agents, want to become coaches or athletic directors. There's, there's a particular young man in your office that took a non-conventional approach to, to getting, you know, kind of breaking in. Talk about his story and some lessons learned from him.
0: Um, I had a young man that um, called me as a junior in high school. Um, don't ever get calls from, from kids that young. And he said, listen, I really want to be in your business. And I kind of blew him off, and I kind of blew him off. And his high school coach called me, and he said, listen, he really wants to be in your business. Can you just let him come to your office one day and shadow you? And so I said, yeah, he can come up here. He's going come up here at 1 o'clock. And he can stay for three or four hours, and, and I'll let him shadow us. It happened to be during one of the lockouts, during one of the collective bargaining sessions, right as the lockout was over. So there was a lot of business going on at the time he came. And so he sat in, a, in my office in the corner chair and just stared at me while I was on the phone and okay. and I was thinking, you know, do you need me to, do you need something? You know, he was trying to shadow me, watch me, and then he said, I don't want to bother you, but I'm going to pull this chair out here outside your office, and anything you need, I'll go get it. And he was literally helping everybody in the office, no matter what they needed. So at 5 o'clock, I said, hey, you can go home, appreciate it. You know, if you got to college, let me know. Maybe I'll see you six years down the road. He said, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm here until as long as you are. I'm just going to sit out here and wait for you to leave, but I'll get you whatever you need. And he shows up with dinner. He shows up, I mean, this kid was like like Jack in the Box. He popped up everywhere. And so um the next day, he 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 I think he's gone. So we come to the office about 7:30, 8 o'clock in the morning. One of our girls that runs the office got there. And she got there like 6:45, and he was sitting in the hallway of the office building waiting on us. And I called her in. I said, Where did he come from? So well, he was here before we got here. He stayed that day from that time till midnight with us, never helped start doing things, was helping file th- whatever anybody asked him to do. So by the time he had to go back to school, everybody in off was in love with this kid and they were coming in as a 16 year old junior in high school. We got to hire this guy. I'm like, we don't hire people in high school. <laughs> and so anyway, he went to college got, and now he's got a job with us, but he was so over the top aggressive and not in a bad way, in a good way of wanting to help and do anything he could. And that's the one thing I've always used as an example to my people is that look, and in, in, in the agency side of the business is different. There's really not a lot of hi- hierarchy, even though we have, you know, 52 people in our, you know, division, it's it's really not hierarchy. Everybody just pitches in and helps, okay? And so that that trade is something I think comes across well when you're – I think that works for anybody, though. I think if, a, if you're in an internship or you're trying to break in, if you'll – I always felt this way when I was young in my early 20s starting the business. I never thought I was the smartest guy in the room, okay? I never thought I had all the answers, and I didn't know who else I was going to be going up against. But I always felt like, okay, the only thing I can control is how hard I work. And if I can control that, if I can outwork the next guy, then I've got a chance. I can level the playing field. If he's smarter than me, but at you know at five o'clock he's going to want to go home and cut out for the night, but I'll stay till ten, make the extra phone call, you know, write the extra letter, whatever. Maybe I can get ahead of the guy that's got more going for him than I do.
1: You had thirteen thousand applications this last hiring cycle for how many positions?
0: Yeah, I will clarify that because I went back and looked at that. That was for our, all of our internships throughout our sports division. We had in football, um, we had like 1,700. Um, and it's hard because – and, and I've I've really been – one thing I said earlier today at the class I spoke to is that our last – we've doubled in size from an employee standpoint in our – football player coach in our basketball coaching division in the last two years. And we've done probably 80% of the hiring from our intern program, okay? And our intern program is all different types of programs. It's undergraduates in business, sports management, accounting. We have a a law program where we take first and second year law students and bring them in. We've hired 80% from that. And part of the reason is I would personally rather have a young, eager, person that wants to learn that has energy as I would an older person that sort of is set in their ways and I've got to break them. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily right about that. Okay. I, that's just me. That's the personal thing that I have. And so um, we have a lot of applicants that we're studying that program right now. So we talked about earlier, because it's really hard to differentiate how a lot of these companies, and I'm sure a lot of you have done it in here. You send your resume in to some, you know, nameless you know, address that you can't call anybody, write a letter to anybody, or try to get a head up, and you've got to do something on your resume that gets their attention, right? And so it's very hard to sift through those resumes and figure it out. So we're in the process of studying our intern system right now to make sure we're getting the – you know, the old days when I came out of school, every internship was free, okay? Everyone. I mean, you – there was well, – I shouldn't say everyone. Most of them were you just walked to a company and will intern for you for a year for free, well, I think that's a problem because then you really either only get the kid that's going into debt or you get the privileged kid that parent can afford to put them out there for a couple of years as an intern. They don't need to, to work for a living. And so, therefore, I think it's we're, we're studying that whole program right now. But I do feel for you all, I mean, it's hard on how to get it break into the intern programs. I mean, we work really hard at trying to get through those resumes and look at them and see things that catch our eye. And, you know, any – Anybody that's volunteered for anything on campus that has anything to do with service or sports or things like that, that are sort of, you know, selfless or that they realize they're kind of working harder than what they're getting out of it? Really? Th- those catch it. will catch our eye.
1: Social media. Uh, it's changed the way the NFL's evaluated players. Um, also had an impact on kind of how you can evaluate talent and then, From a standpoint of you and your clients, it's changed the way that information has uh, the access that some of your clients have to information. How have you seen social media impact the way that you do business?
0: Well, in the the old days, in the 80s and 90s, before social media, you know, as an agent, you would tell a client, hey, I think we should do this. And he would say, okay, let's do it every time. And so now you say to a player or a coach, I think we should do this. Why? That's the ask you. Why? And you get to the bottom of it, they read something on Twitter or they saw something on Instagram or they saw something on Facebook or they read some article that, that said something they are going to question you about. So that's changed our our business from that standpoint. Now, I will say this, from a player business, if I could advise a ninth grade tailback who's going to become the next Heisman Trophy winner, let's just say, if you knew that, you'd hardly know that in the ninth grade, but let's just say. I would tell that ninth grader not to touch social media until he became a professional. Not touch it. I mean, don't do Instagram, don't do Twitter. Now You know how hard that is to tell a ninth grader in today's world. But the reason I would tell them that is because teams have now hired social media experts with backgrounds in social media and, and psychologists to go in and they have programs now where they can look at all your social media and draw a conclusion about you. And we all know what social media is. I mean, social media is not really reality a lot of times. I mean, when's the last time you saw a friend of yours on Instagram post something that's horrible in their life, that my day's horrible, it's falling apart. I, no, it's with all their friends out having a great time. And you look at somebody's social media, wow, this person's got you know life by the tail here. They, they figured it all out. And it's all fake most of the time, right? That's what social media can be. So back to my point is that if you were going to advise an athlete, you would say, Don't do social media. On the other hand, if you're advising a coach, coach feels like he needs it, but he's got to be careful what's going on in social media. has to have somebody manage that because if he makes one misstep or one thing that offends a group or does something the wrong way, he's got a problem there too. And so I think there's a lot to the the, the social media part of it now is a tricky piece in in, in sports because people draw a lot of conclusions from that. Now, on the other hand, once you're a pro, a lot of companies that are coming to do business with pro athletes, first thing they want to know is how many followers do you have, right? So it's so. And when you hear that as a freshman in college and you're a great athlete, you say, well, I want to get my, my followers up to 400,000, 300,000, you know, millions and so on and so forth. And so that's what they – so you're, it's sort of a catch-22 that you're called in there and advising the, the players. But, I mean, I've said more teams say to me, man, I just went back and got our – social media report on this player in the draft, and, man, that looks horrible. Some of the stuff he's posted is crazy, you know.
1: Virtual reality, AI, and and talk about the ways that it's changed, uh, the ways that teams prepare players, the way that coaches and, and general managers get prepared for the games as well.
0: Virtual reality has come in two different ways. I mean, I think on the player side, it's changed it in, in trying to prepare for games where, you know, teams can give give players – you know, different like put a virtual reality set on your on your eyes and look at different sets that, that a safety's looking at or a linebacker's looking at during the game. That's a coaching tool. I think the other thing is that it's also changed the way that recruiting's done a little bit sometimes now. So especially with the recruiting calendar being moved up in the sports and 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 high school players are making decisions on college earlier and earlier than they used to. Sometimes you have players that can't get to your campus as soon as you're to them. And so a lot of schools now have the virtual reality sets to where they can literally put something on a player and he can see the whole experience at Texas or at LSU or at USC from running through the tunnel to being on the field during a game to going to class to where he's going to eat. And so, you know, you've got a, a grandmother who's very important to the to the young man's decision, but she because she's maybe sick, she can't travel, they can put this on her and show it to her and she can get a feel for what it's like. To be right there in that experience.
1: Would you take a look around the corner and a decade from now? What does the National Football League look like?
0: Um, I think that the NFL has the. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, I work heavily in the NFL for a living, and my, I have three sons. And if I went to my three sons and said, "What are your two? What's what's your two most favorite things? Is it hockey, baseball, whatever?" They would say it's college football and NBA. They, that's exactly what they say, college football, or vice versa, NBA college football. And I think the NFL's got to catch up probably to where the NBA's done a great job of sort of marrying their business to their players and to their stars, and they've created stars that people like to follow, that people like. So, for instance, in I'm just picking one out of the air here. Odell Beckham in the NFL, He's he's a little bit like that, but for him there are Tens, you know, 10, 20, 30 of those in the NBA. And, they, and I think part of it goes back to the mentality of ownership, where the owners, I think, in the NBA are most of those guys have come from hedge funds or, or dot-coms or technology companies, and they've made a lot of their money in the last 25 years. And so they've made it in dealing with people a lot of times. And the NFL owners are a lot of them are old guard, old line money owners that have made money, for years and years and years and they look at things a little bit differently. so I think the NFL's probably got a challenge. I mean, I'm not you don't have to ask them that more than me, but I think that is gonna be something that they have to have to have to look at, you know, in the next, you know, five to ten years. And I think the challenge too of the safety issue in the game is gonna is gonna become um more and more important. You know, no one likes to see a player that's forty years old or forty five years old that's got, you know, had trauma issues or whatever from all the hits they've taken. So I think that's that's something that's going to face them more and more too.
1: Do you think we'll continue to see more players retire earlier in the game of uh, game of football?
0: Um, we saw it with the Brickshaw-Ferguson, all-pro left tackle at the New York Jets, was a high pick in the first round, played 10 years in the league and walked away probably at the top of his game. I think he felt like, I don't want to speak for him, but you know he had he had a good 10-year career and didn't want to keep playing but could have played probably – three to four more years. Um, look, the money's intoxicating. The fame's intoxicating. You know, guy told me one time, he said, Jimmy, as, as hard as it is to get into pro football, sometimes it's harder to get out. I mean, you, you become addicted to that at times and it becomes your identity and who you are. And so I think it's a case-by-case basis, but I think you could see that.
1: Tribe, woo! Thanks for listening. I know that was jam-packed. And I hope Jimmy's words propel you to push through that next life transition. Now, go out there. Keep saying yes. Stay in the deep end and I know you can finish this for me. No struggle. No progress.